There we go. Okay. Uh, interesting morning being the sound guy and preaching at the same time. Um, so obviously we're having some issues with our technology, as you are very well aware. Normally we would start off the sermon with uh, this awesome video that Dale made um, that includes Miss Dorothy's wonderful voice telling us why uh, we're going through the Old Testament and why it's still important and why we love the Old Testament. We love the Old Testament because Jesus loved the Old Testament, and uh, the Old Testament speaks about who Jesus is and what he uh, was coming to do for us. So that's why we're in this series um, called Origins, uh, reading the Bible Jesus read. Um, and so we're continuing that series today. Obviously, for those of you who've been here before, you know that I am not Dale. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, Dale is in Alabama this morning. He was preaching uh, at a church that we love very much. Uh, they have uh, really had our backs. They've actually come out and visited us a few times. They helped with the Easter egg hunt this past year. Um, and so we really love them, but they had him come out and preach this morning uh, because he's actually attending a conference um, out east. Uh, so we miss him, but um, we, uh, we will do okay without him because God is still on the throne, um, regardless of how many technology issues we have um, or who happens to be standing up here. Um, <laughs> So I'm a little flustered because things have not gone according to plan, but um, I think we'll be all right. Um, so today we are in Genesis 32, uh, verses 24 through 32. We are continuing the story of Jacob um, and, uh, and his story. So um, if you haven't been following along or if you're new to City Life, um, where we're at, we're in the book of Genesis. Uh, the Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. Uh, it talks about how God created the world, uh, created all the plants and animals, the rocks and uh, the sky and everything that we see in our world. And finally, he created humans. And he created it all with a perfect harmony uh, to work together uh, and in peace. But then the very first humans, Adam and Eve, uh, they chose to rebel against God and go against what he told them to do. And because they did that, um, everything was broken. Like nothing worked right anymore. Like there was pain and suffering that came into the world. There was no longer the peace that we once had and we no longer had the closeness to God. So God had a, a rescue plan though. Like he wasn't gonna just leave us where we were at. He had a rescue plan. And part of his plan was dealing with this family. So he uh, called this man named Abraham out from his uh, from where he was living into a new land, and he promised that he was going to give uh, him and his ancestors this land called the Promised Land, and that all of his uh, his uh, descendants would be numerous. Like, imagine like the number of stars in the sky. You know, kind of that thought. Like, you can't even count how many descendants you'll have, and that they'll live in this land, and that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. And then we see that this story continues, that this blessing is passed down to his children, to their children, to their children, on and on and on. And his uh, grandson is Jacob. That's who we're talking about now. He's part of this link in this chain of blessing that God has, has brought into the world to, uh, to rescue us. And finally, we see uh, in the New Testament that the, the final link of that chain was Jesus. And Jesus came through that family into the world, lived a perfect life, uh, on our behalf and rescued us uh, by his sacrifice. And so we're in the middle of this long story of how God is rescuing us and we're, we're dealing with uh, Jacob. So let's go ahead and read uh, Genesis 32, verses 24 through 32. It says, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
Okay, I'm going to pause right here. This is kind of just coming out of the middle of nowhere. So Jacob is coming back home. He's lived kind of in exile for a while. Um, He uh, did some sketchy things to his family. He lied to his father. He stole from his brother. His brother was very angry with him and said, I'm going to kill you for what you did. And so for like 20 years, he lived in exile. But now God is calling him back home, and he has no idea what his brother's going to do. So he's a little afraid. But he's coming back with his family. He's got some flocks and some things that he has. So he, he separates himself from them. He offers his brother uh, some gifts, but he, he comes alone and separates from his family because if his brother is still wanting to kill him, he doesn't want the rest of his family to have to deal with that. So he's going to try and meet Esau, his brother, one-on-one. So he's alone in the middle of the night, knowing that his brother is coming towards him. Okay, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. This man just appears out of nowhere. Um, And they wrestle all night. Verse 25 says, When the man saw that he could not defeat him, so the man could not defeat Jacob, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he was struck, Jacob's hip socket, at the thigh muscle. Let's pray real quick before we continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you were wanting to, to hear, wanting us to hear. Um, God, would you uh, just be using uh, your gospel today that you would uh, go forth that the Holy Spirit would use the words of my mouth to um, if, go out and affect what you would desire your gospel to do. God, we pray for the freedom of captives. We pray that hearts would be set free to love you, free from the burdens of this world. Um, Heavenly Father, God, we just pray that you would focus our, our attention on you and not on uh, anything else that would distract us or keep us from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we get this kind of weird story in the middle of Jacob's story. This man appears out of nowhere, and they just start wrestling. Now, why on earth does this happen? Um, To be honest, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say. It just kind of gives the story, drops it in our laps out of nowhere. But we see that God has got a plan here, that he's doing something. Um, We we see that... um, In this story, we see that this man, somehow Jacob knows that this man is God. Um, We'll we'll come back to that. That's a little strange for this part of the story, but we'll come back to why he thinks this is God. Um, And we see that this man not only blesses Jacob, but changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Now, that's pretty important. Um, If you remember from last week in Dale's sermon, he talked about Jacob's name. Now, we have looked in the past and we saw that um, Jacob did some things and he kind of deceived his brother out of his birthright. That was kind of his inheritance from his father. So he kind of stole his brother's inheritance. 
And then later on, he, he dresses up and pretends to be his older brother so that he will get his father's blessing, which represents kind of his leadership in the family, that he's going to take over the family name and, and lead the family um, rather than what normally his older brother would do. So he does kind of some sketchy things. And Dale mentions that his name, Jacob, kind of has translated into something like usurper or uh, deceiver. Um, basically, he, he kind of means that he's something of a thief, a liar. Um, how, how would you imagine, what would that be like to be known as liar by your name? Like, hey, liar, how's it going? You know, did you do your homework, liar? Sure. Um, I, I can't imagine what that would be like to grow up with, with a name like that. Um, that brings us to our first point, and obviously you can't see the points, but hopefully we'll get that up soon. Um, our first point is that identity is a powerful thing. Identity is a powerful thing. We get this from uh, the text, in verse, starting in verse 26. But Dick, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel because you have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. So Jacob not only had this name, but he actually lived out the pattern. He was a hustler. He was a schemer. He was kind of a con man. His name really did kind of fit his behavior. So his name, the literal translation of his name means heel grabber, which doesn't necessarily translate to us. Maybe like, you're pulling my leg. I wonder if that's where we get the translation from or where we get that phrase from. Um, but his name really does mean like he's trying to usurp his brother. He's, he's deceiving people. And not only was that his name, but his mother actually reinforced this. We, we saw this a few weeks ago when his mother was actually telling him, okay, you're going to dress up like your brother. We're going to make you smell like your brother. You're, we're going to bring some food to your father so that he thinks that you are his brother so that you will get the blessing. So his mother is training him in how to do this stuff. So he, he grows up in the middle of this. And time and again, we, we see this pattern over and over in his life that when the stuff hits the wall or when his back is up against the wall, that he, he kind of turns to, to bending the truth to, to get by, to, to succeed. Um, and this is kind of the pattern that he lives his life in until he has an encounter with God. And this is, this is one of, he has a couple of encounters with God. This is one of them. And here we see that God changes his name from Jacob, deceiver, to Israel. Now, Israel in Hebrew means something more along the lines of wrestles with God, or God wrestles, or struggles, which makes sense given the story. Like, they were wrestling together. Um, so now he gets to be known, rather than as the liar, as somebody who wrestles with God. And this is a blessing, he asks for a blessing, and this is the blessing that he gives him. A new name, a new identity, a new way of living, living trusting in God, not trusting in his own skills. A few years ago, I read a, uh, a Christian book that was on counseling. Um, it, it dealt with some, uh, it gave some real life examples, some stories of people who had been in some stuff. And uh, it ch actually changed their names. It gave them false names to kind of protect the innocent, you know, because people probably want their privacy. But um, one of these stories was from a man that the book called Joey. Now, in Joey, Joey's story, it goes back to when he was age six years old. Now, Joey grew up as a little boy. He was uh, about six years old about the time that this started. 
Um, and he was a very shy, very emotional, artistic kind of boy. Not, you know, not the rough and tumble type, but um, very, um, very emotional. His father, however, was kind of the opposite. He was very much the rough. He was a hard man. He didn't really tolerate weakness at all. And one day, uh, Joey had uh, a broken toy. And it wasn't like he was doing anything wrong with it. It just it broke, as things do. And he was crying. A perfectly normal reaction for a six-year-old. You wouldn't think that that was a bad thing. But Joey's father didn't like that. He didn't like weakness. And so he very gruffly said to Joey, don't be such a little, and I can't actually use the word he said. We'll just say sissy. Don't be a sissy. But the word he used was actually a much stronger word. That word shot like a heart to Joey's, uh, shot like an arrow into Joey's heart. It took root deep in his soul. Every time his dad would get frustrated or angry with Joey, he would remember that moment and he would remember the pain. Over time, as he saw how different he was from his father, how he didn't um, have the same strength, have the same power to bottle up his emotions and not, um, other than anger, uh, not, not um, show them. He would remember this moment and he started to believe that maybe he actually just was different. Maybe that name, that F name, that is actually pretty vile, actually meant more, actually really was who he was. Maybe that was what his identity was. And that word began to own him. As the bitterness and anger of that experience left a trail of wreckage in Joey's life, he went uh, into all the world and sought whatever comfort he could find. Well into middle age, he was living with that name as his identity. But then in middle age, he met Jesus. He met Jesus through some friends who gently and compassionately cared for him. They talked about their love for Jesus to him. And this was very different from what he would have expected from God the Father. This was somebody who wanted to walk alongside him and to care for him and love him where he was at. Jesus came to him slowly and gently. He learned through his friends of the compassionate heart of the kind father who wanted to see Joey made whole and see Joey made new. Jesus began to pull him out of the gutter and rebuild the shattered pieces of Joey's life. And he gave him a new name, son. That word was once a source of shame for Joey, and it named him. That was his identity. That is what shame does to us. It tries to name us and own us. This is who you are. You're not somebody who does this one thing. You're not somebody who struggles with this one thing. You are that one thing. It tries to rename you so that you see yourself as drunk, as loser, as unlovable. So what about your life? Who in your life has named you? Maybe you've had a parent who says, you're just a disappointment to me. Everything you do, I find disappointing. Maybe you had a teacher who said, you're just not worth my time. Maybe you have a boss who thinks that you're lazy or incompetent. Maybe you've stood before a judge who said, you're just a menace to society and that's all you'll ever be. Lock him up and throw away the key. Maybe you yourself have named yourself. Maybe you see yourself as not good enough 
not worthy. But the awesome thing, the good news, is that God overrules all those names. When he names you beloved child, there is nothing anyone can do to take it away from you, nothing anyone can do to ever diminish that. God will always see you as his beloved child, no matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you mess up. So as his children, God desires to join us in the fray. He's not looking for a a few good random moments in our lives, but he wants to be there for us through it all. He He wants to be with us in the happy and in the sad. He wants to be with us in the triumph and the struggle. And I think we see that kind of in Jacob's story here. And that brings us to our second point. God loves persistent, faithful prayer. We get this from the text in Genesis, in verse 24. It says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that the man, when the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. Oh, sorry, I skipped ahead to to verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob isn't willing to take a no on the first, uh, first time. He doesn't just wait around. He keeps struggling. They wrestled all night long. This is no mere 12 rounds. This is going long. Jacob didn't just tap out and give up. He saw the struggle all the way to the end, even after getting hurt. Now, I kind of wondered what this meant. So it says that his hip was dislocated. Um, I looked up the Hebrew, and Hebrew is kind of a poetic language, and so it's not really super precise. Um, Hip being dislocated seems like it probably is a good translation. It talks about, so the one word talks about like the, the hip or thigh, um, and then the other one is, kind of means disjointed. Like it's it used in this verse to say dislocated, but sometimes it means like cut off, as in like you are cut off from your people, or it actually sometimes is referred to as an execution. So it's like pretty serious. Um, now, we don't know specifically if dislocated hip is the absolute correct translation, if it was a complete dislocation or a partial one. I I wanted to get some more information, so I reached out to a friend. Um, Some of you may know her, Michelle Hamill. Um, She was part of our church for a while. She is a surgeon, um, and she knows a lot of the the medical stuff, and she's dealt with some dislocated hips. Um, I'm not going to quote her directly, but suffice it to say that um, if he had his hip completely dislocated, he probably was not walking away from this. Like, they have to put you completely under to put it back in. And even then, you're probably not going to want to walk for a while. Um, so maybe it was just a partial dislocation. Or maybe, um, maybe the translators are doing the best they can, and something else close to that happened. Traditionally, uh, in Jewish custom, the, a Jewish butcher will remove the sciatic nerve from uh, any meat that they bring from this area um, because of this story. Like, this is the tradition. Now, do we know if it was something dealing with his sciatic nerve that caused him to limp away from this? We don't really know, but that's the tradition. But what we do know is it was pretty painful. Like, at the very end of the story, it says he was limping away. And I think, honestly, 
regardless of whether it was some kind of dislocation or nerve damage or something like this, chances are he was probably limping from this for the rest of his life. He was walking, but still limping. And even though he got this really painful injury, he didn't just stop. He continued to press into God for a blessing. Now, if you look back in his story, Jacob had already had God's blessing. Even before he was born, while he and Esau were still in the womb, because they were, they were twins, while they were still in the womb, God said, the older will serve the younger. God was giving his blessing, his stamp of approval on Jacob as being the, the next link in the chain of this family of blessing. So even before he was born, before he had the chance to, to do anything right or wrong, God had already chosen to bless him. But that was not the way, that was not all. That was not the only thing that God was going to do in his life. God didn't want to just interact with him on a, a transactional basis. So here, I'll write you a check for blessing. Go live your life. That's not what he's wanting. God is deeply, deeply relational. He wants to walk with us through the process. Sometimes that means getting on the ground and wrestling, as in his case. Now, fortunately, we don't have to do that necessarily with God, not physically. Um, but God wants to be there in the process, in the struggle. He wants to be there during our trials and temptations and our successes and our failures. To drive this point home, Jesus later would tell the parable of the persistent widow. We find that in Luke 18. I'm just going to read that real quick. It's Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a certain judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps persisting me, keeps pestering me, sorry, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay in helping them? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice. So Jesus sets up this example as a contrast to God. Like, here's this man who does not love God. He does not live according to his ways. But even so, because this widow is persistent in asking her request, he ends up granting it to her. How much more will God, who is just, who is loving, who does want our best, grant justice? Jacob cried out for a blessing from God repeatedly. We often think of blessings as uh, wealth or comforts or um, just little trinkets of things that, that make our day go easily, easier. Hashtag blessed, right? Um, but God has something much deeper in mind when he talks about blessing. The Bible refers to things that are far greater blessings. So what is a blessing according to the Bible? There's a few things I think we can learn from this story. The first blessing is knowing God. So Jacob got to meet God face to face. Not only that, but he asked God's name. Now, unfortunately for Jacob, that was not a blessing that he was able to receive. That was for later on. Moses later on asks God's name, and Moses receives God's name. But 
we see that knowing God's name is knowing something about Him. Knowing Him is a blessing. Secondly, we see that God's presence is a blessing. Esau, his older brother, was still coming. He had no idea how far away his brother was, but he knew his brother was coming with 400 men. And he's alone. That would be enough to make me scared. But he knows that now that God is with him, and God is going to be with him when he meets his brother. Because God has promised this blessing to him and his family. And so he's reminded of God's promises and that God is going to be faithful to those. Thirdly, we see blessing is forgiveness and mercy. Jacob had seen God, but his life was spared. What does that mean? Jacob knew how sinful he was. He knew how he had cheated his brother. He knew how he had lied to his father. He did not deserve to go back home. He deserved to be cast out. He did not deserve God's mercy. Seeing God face to face, knowing that God is perfect, God is holy, he did not deserve to survive this interaction. But he does. His life was spared. Now, later on, we see Moses asks God to see his glory. But God doesn't let him see him full on face to face. He gets only to see a reflection of God's glory and of his back. Because God said that no man may look on me and live. Because God is so holy and so glorious and so amazing that us in our sinful nature, we cannot see the fullness of who God is and live. But Jacob met God face to face, not in his full glory, but met him face to face and, got, and lived. He knew all the bad things he had done and how he had sinned against men and, God, men and God. But we see him beginning to walk out a life of repentance. He's turning around. He's confronting his brother rather than running. He's giving his brother gifts and blessings rather than taking from him. Because God has forgiven our sins also, we are no longer his enemy. Because what Jesus has done for us, Jesus died on the cross to pay for the debt that we couldn't pay. Because of that, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our rebellion. He doesn't see our hatred. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. And that brings us to our third point. Believers wrestle with God, not against him. Believers wrestle with God, not against him. In the text, verse 28, it says, Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said, but it will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. He was wrestling with God. Now, what does that mean? Okay, I'm going to step outside of the pulpit for just a minute and give you a little bit of my opinion about what this means. So obviously this is a physical encounter. This isn't uh, metaphorical. This is something that literally happens. We know this because he gets a hip injury. Like, you don't get hip injuries from metaphors. <laughs> At least I hope not. That's one heck of a metaphor. Um, so he's physically wrestling with somebody. Now, some uh, interpreters would say that this is an angel, an angel that has uh, put on robes to look like a man in a, man in, in a sense. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the case, although that's not necessarily um, bad theology. Um, I think this is actually Jesus. 
Now, this is a little early in the story to be seeing Jesus, because we know it's a thousand, couple thousand years later that Jesus is born. So how is Jesus here physically present thousands of years before he's born? Well, that, that gets to who Jesus is. Ultimately, Jesus is God. We know that Jesus was with God before the beginning of time, that he and God, the Father, have this relationship with the Holy Spirit called the Trinity. And before time began, in eternity past, they had this relationship. Jesus was around long before he was born. When he was born, he put on a suit of flesh. He became like us, like a man, and lived like us. But he had existed for eternity past before that. And so I think this is an example of, you know, I don't know what it looks like. It's a mystery how even before he was born, he put on flesh. I don't know. But this is what I believe. Why do I believe this? We see a couple other things that kind of lead me in this direction. Uh, In Genesis chapter 18, we see Abraham, Jacob's great-grandfather, not great-grandfather, his grandfather. Um, He meets with three men, and one of them uses the name of the Lord. Now, that's a big thing. In the Jewish faith, you don't say the name of God without, like, with any kind of irreverence. Like, it is holy. In fact, modern-day Jews will not even say the name of God. In fact, we believe that the correct pronunciation may have been lost to history because nobody has said it for thousands of years, most likely. This is how reverently they treat the name of God. And yet here, in Genesis 18, we see a man using the name of God. We see a different part of the Bible where uh, John has this vision uh, in the book of Revelation. He sees an angel and he starts to fall down and worship because this angel is amazing. He is glorious. He is glowing with uh, this power. And the angel says, no, 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 don't worship me. I am not God. Don't worship me. And yet we see in Genesis, Abraham worshiping this man as God. I think that was another time Jesus showed up. Also in Exodus 33, um, we see that, again, Moses asked to see God in his glory. And God says, no man may see me but live. No man may see me and live. So if this was God, he couldn't just show up in his full glory. But he had to be as a man. The fact that this is God really uh, changes the story for me. Why? Because he was wrestling with the creator of heaven and earth. If God was his enemy, he could have utterly obliterated Joseph, or Jacob, not Joseph. I mean, like, there would be no contest. Like, if you call mountains into being, how are you not going to be strong enough to win a wrestling match? I mean, come on. So he's not his enemy. They're not wrestling as, as enemies. But we see here, they're wrestling in a very similar sense to the way God wrestles with us now. He's struggling with us as our children, not as enemies, not as face-to-face combatants, but to work out the difficult parts of life, to work out the confusion where we don't understand. He wants to do this in relationship with him. Not only that, but you know what? God is not offended when we doubt. If you're like, God you know, I love you, but I'm just not sure what you're doing. What these things that are happening in my life, this doesn't make sense. This is hard. I don't like this. God is not afraid of those questions. Why are you doing this, God? I don't understand. He's not afraid of that. In fact, he invites us to to ask him, not as a challenge, who the heck do you think you are, God? 
No. God, you're my father. You love me. Why is this happening? I don't understand. Help me. That's what God, God invites us into that struggle. It's, it's different than saying, I know better. It's not that. It's saying, God, you know better, but I want to know better. I want to understand. He understands us honestly questioning him. We see an awesome picture of this in Psalm 22. This is King David, and he's lamenting. He is mourning over his situation. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted you, they trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save them. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. This is in the Bible. Over one-third of the Psalms are laments like this. Over a third of the Psalms are people crying out to God, this sucks. This is in the Bible. God is not afraid of this. God is encouraging us into this kind of relationship. Not only is it in the Bible, this was King David. He was known as a man after God's own heart. He was the God's chosen and anointed king over Israel. Not just some random person. This was God's chosen. And God doesn't get angry at him. He doesn't strike him down for his impotence to to question God. No. God wants us to struggle with him. I myself, I know what it's like to struggle with God. I know what it's like to wrestle with God for a long time. Some of you know about my past. A couple of years ago, before I was ordained, I wrote down my story um, because I felt like the partners of our church needed to know my past and understand where I was coming from and, and what Jesus had saved me from. Now, this is my story, but I'm going to kind of rely on my notes because I want to be very careful about the language I use. Um, yeah, I don't want to bring up any questions that you know parents may not be quite ready to answer, but um, I can remember being uh, a very young boy um, growing up and dreaming of one day being a husband and father. Um, I, I longed for it. I looked forward to it. When people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would normally think of, okay, they're asking about what career do I want to have? And so I'd, I would always answer in that vein. But if I look back and honestly thought about like, where my heart was at, I could have just as honestly answered a dad. Now, when I was very young, I was introduced to adult content on the internet. Gradually, over time, I noticed that I felt more drawn to the men in the images that I was looking at. By the time I was 13, I was looking exclusively at images of men, and I was addicted to it. 
I don't use the word addiction lightly. I know that I wasn't um, hooked on a chemical drug, but I couldn't stop myself. I tried. I don't use that word lightly. And even though I have never been um, addicted to a substance, as I know uh, some people, some friends I have, have been, um, I don't use that word lightly. I, I truly believe it was an addiction. I was saved by Jesus when I was 16, in the middle of my brokenness, in the middle of my addiction. And it was a long time for me to see any victory in my addiction to online content. And in fact, there was even a season of my life where I chose to walk away from God, to, uh, to backslide, to, to live and uh, act out on the desires that I had. But still, I didn't want those desires. And still, I had that long desire to be a husband and father that had always remained. I cried out time and time again for God to take these things away from me. And yet, he didn't. To this day, I still have unwanted desires that remain. Despite begging and pleading and crying out to God for those desires, he, he chose to leave them. There was a time in the middle of this where I felt like I was utterly rotten to the core, as if there was something wrong in my DNA that could not be fixed, that I was just completely broken and would never be able to be fixed. This was where I lived for a while, wrestling with God. Many years later, through some counseling and support of friends and my church family, God freed me of a deep burden of shame I had for what I desired and what I had done. I felt freer than I ever had. And people actually responded to me saying, hey, there's something different about you. The way you walk, the way you carry yourself, something is different. The way you talk with us, the way you interact, something is different. My shame was gone. God did that, and yet some of those desires and attractions still remained. All the while still carrying this longing to be a husband and father from my youngest youth. Now, I hold marriage and family in, in high regard, and because I believe what I believe about marriage being between a man and a woman and God's um, divine appointment of, for, and beauty for what marriage is, I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to pretend to love somebody just to get married. I'm not going to take a shortcut and find a way to, to have a family that is cheating what God has designed. I don't know why all this time God has answered no. I know that it is possible that I may struggle with this for the rest of my life. Just like the Apostle Paul he prayed three times for God to remove what he called a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was. We don't know if it was a physical ailment. We don't know if it was some sort of temptation. We have no idea. But what's important was God chose not to remove that struggle from Paul's life. God answered no. God said, in your weakness will be my strength. 
That's the kind of God we have. In John 14, he promises that he will not leave us or abandon us as orphans. He has said we are his children. He's not going to just ditch us when things get hard. He's going to walk with us through those hard things. You may feel stuck in your hurts or hang-ups. You may feel like that thing that you're embarrassed about or ashamed of is all that you are. But if you're in Christ, God is making you holy. God is making you like Jesus. And that is a lifelong process. Some of these things we will struggle with for the rest of our lives until the day we die. We all start messed up. But that's why Jesus died, to rescue us from our mess, to bring us into a right relationship with God. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He lived a perfect life for us. He didn't sin. He didn't lie. He didn't cheat. He bore the scorn of wicked men for us. And he died the death that we deserved on the cross. His blood was poured out to pay for that debt, that rebellion that we had against God. And then on the third day, he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose. And in his resurrection, he provides his power through the Holy Spirit for us to live. Even in the struggle, we can live with Holy Spirit power and say no to temptation, say no to desires that don't honor God. If you are a believer in Christ, then you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Spiritually, we have all died with Christ and are buried with him in baptism. And not just that, but the power of sin in our lives is dead. We still have to struggle against it. We still have to carry that burden, but we have the ability to say no. Say, I would rather honor God. And even when we mess up, God still is there wanting to forgive and have mercy for us. We are no longer slaves to our sin, unable to resist. Now, in conclusion, um, if the band wants to come back up, Nobody will achieve perfection in this life. We have to go through this, this struggle. Even after we struggle, even after we surrender to God in repentance, we continue to struggle the rest of our life. But God is with us through it all. Jacob's parents may have named him and trained him as a deceiver, but God called him loved. We may walk with a limp for the rest of our life, as Jacob did. But one day, one day, we will run. We will run into the arms of our Savior. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. We will see God face to face and we will live. You may feel ashamed of your past, but God can use you. God can use your shame for his glory and turn your shame into blessing. That, that's why I shared that part of my story. I haven't shared it publicly like this before. I've shared it, been very careful about that. Um, but every time I have shared it with the, the few people that I trusted, I've seen God use my story. He used my shame to bless the people who were hearing it and to get closer to God. And even though it's, it's difficult and it makes me nervous to share that part of my story, I get to rejoice because I know God uses it for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for your word. Thank you for your encouragement that we are not alone no matter the difficulties, that you will walk through with us. Jesus, thank you for dying for us on the cross. Thank you for cleansing us from all of our unrighteousness. God, in this moment, let us confess, in this moment of silence, let us confess our sins to you, knowing that you want to free us from our hurts, our hang-ups, our addictions, knowing that you want to wrap your arms around us in love. Let us pray in this moment of silence and confess our sins. Jesus, here we are in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our struggle. We know that you are here and that you hear us. We stand firm on your word that you say that when we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to completely cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. There is no sin big enough for you to not forgive. Nothing we could have done could turn your love away from us. God, help us to love you better. Help us to love one another better. Help us to turn away from the things that draw us away from you. God, we confess that even though there are things that we struggle with, that we seem to to carry with us for the rest of our lives, that you are bigger than all of it. God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to cleanse us.